I'm Scott Aniel, and you're listening to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Did you know that understanding the Davidic covenant is very important to understanding the arrangement and purpose of the 150 Psalms, including what they are supposed to form in us? It is, and that's the subject of today's podcast. But before we get into that, I want to let you know about a new teaching curriculum that we have published through G3 Ministries. We are pleased to announce a new free teaching curriculum on the Sermon on the Mount by Ryan Bush. This is a nine-lesson Bible study that was specifically written for small groups, but it could easily be adapted to fit other needs. You can download this teaching curriculum for free at g3men.org, and be sure to check out our other teaching curricula, including one on the subject of worship by men like Tom Askell, Vodi Bakum, Josh Bice, Kosti Hinn, Phil Johnson, Steve Lawson, John MacArthur, Laramie Minga, Matthew Sykes, Paul Washer, and James White, as well as one on the subject of biblical apologetics by Pastor Brad Anderson. I am convinced that most people today don't understand that the 150 Psalms have been arranged into five books with a very specific progression and order in mind and with a very specific purpose and power for the formation of our hearts. The very first word of Psalm 1 captures well the intended purpose of the book of Psalms, blessedness. To be blessed literally means a state of well-being or to flourish or to prosper. It's what today we might call the good life. This is what all people want. We want to flourish. Martin Luther noted this when he said, quote, The search for personal blessedness is common to all men. There is no one who does not desire to fare well or hate to fare badly. Similarly, Robert Harris said this, quote, The end whereto all men are carried and whereat they aim is happiness. And Thomas Watson agrees. He said, quote, Blessedness is the desire of all men. And he defines blessedness this way, that which, quote, lies in the fruition of the chief good. Charles Spurgeon also said, quote, It is an old saying, and possibly a true one, that every man is seeking after happiness. But blessedness really is not happiness, as that word might connote today. It's not just a feeling. Rather, as John Blanchard, I think, helpfully notes, quote, when the Bible tells us that someone is blessed, it is not telling us what they feel, but what they are. Happiness is a subjective state, whereas blessedness is an objective state. So this idea of blessedness is important for understanding the purpose and power of the arrangement of the 150 Psalms. God promised this. He promised this kind of flourishing to humankind all the way back in Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God promised this sort of blessedness to humankind in general. He promised all of the bounty of his creation for humankind to enjoy as a blessing to them. 
But he also commanded, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In other words, God promises blessing to humankind under his rule. And that's exactly what the Psalms portray. Blessing comes only for those who submit to God as king. But it's also important to recognize in God's blessing of Genesis chapter 1 that this language of blessing is kingly language. Subdue and have dominion is kingly language. God crowned Adam with glory. He granted him the right to execute God's rule over the rest of creation. This idea of man ruling over creation as God's vice-regent under the rule of God is what David specifically refers to in Psalm 8 when he writes, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Notice the deliberate language that David uses of man having dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. He's echoing themes from Genesis 1.28. And all of those themes are encapsulated in that first word of Psalm 1, blessed. To be blessed is to realize God's initial intent for humankind to flourish in submission to him and in dominion over the rest of creation as his regal representatives. But then third, it's also important to recognize that the language of descendants, of seed, is an important element of God's original blessing upon humankind. And that's a theme that becomes key in the Psalms as well. Part of God's blessing is filling the earth with descendants. But this idea of seed takes on an even more critical role after Adam and Eve fall into sin, when they rebel against God's rule and thus fail to observe the condition of true blessedness. The reality of sin, the reality of the fall, prevents man from ruling as God intended in his original blessing of Genesis 1.28, and so God promises to one day raise up a seed of the woman who will exercise the dominion that Adam failed to accomplish and experience the fullness of the kind of blessing that God promised for humankind in Genesis 1.28. To Satan, the tempter, God said in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So both of these passages, the dominion blessing of Genesis 1.28 and the proto-evangelium, the pre-gospel of Genesis 3.15, their underlying promises of blessing by exercising dominion through a seed of the woman are key in understanding the progression of thought through the Psalms and, ultimately, the nature of true blessedness. This then leads us to consider the importance of another passage of Scripture for understanding the progress of the Psalms, and that is the Davidic Covenant. As I've said, God's intent to bless man 
by giving him rule over all things under his ultimate rule, did not end with Adam's failure. God still intends to bless humankind through the mediatorial rule of what the Old Testament often calls an anointed one. And again, this is critical for understanding a proper image of blessedness. This idea of the anointed one is first introduced in the Psalms in the second Psalm, and then it's developed through the rest of the Psalter. An ungodly conception of blessedness, which is really the point of Psalm 2, which casts off the rule of God, also rejects, as Psalm 2, 2 states, his anointed. And so we need to understand the nature of this anointed one and how he plays into a proper conception of blessedness in submission to God's rule. Although Psalm 2 doesn't have a superscription which attributes authorship, Acts 4.25 tells us that it was written by David. And that shouldn't surprise us. David is the most well-known author of the Psalms. He didn't write them all, of course, but he's certainly featured. And in fact, David is a central focus of how the entire collection of Psalms were intentionally organized. David was God's anointed king, God's representative ruler on earth, The term translated anointed in the Psalms and throughout Scripture is the word Messiah. It refers to God's chosen kingly representative. And this is where the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 comes into play. Yahweh is the sovereign ruler over all things, but he specifically chose David to be his anointed king on earth. He told David in 1 Chronicles 17, very parallel to 2 Samuel 7, And it shall be, when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son." And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Psalm 2 specifically references this in verse 7 where it says, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. The one speaking in that verse is the king that the Lord has set on Zion. This is the Lord's anointed. And when he says that the Lord said to him, you are my son, he is quoting God's covenant with David. God promised David, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Psalm 2 is quoting the Davidic covenant, specifically God's promise to David that his son would continue his kingly line as God's anointed. References to God's anointed like this appear in at least nine psalms, And two of those psalms specifically mention God's promise to David's seed. It's also important to recognize that God made this covenant with David following a significant event that helped to firmly establish David's rule in Israel, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The center of Yahweh's rule had been his tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant was housed as a symbol of his presence, 
The Ark, as you probably recall, had been captured by the Philistines prior to Saul's reign, and the tabernacle was moved from Shiloh to Gilgal and eventually Gibeon, which was north of Jerusalem. In that same region, Gibeah had been King Saul's capital city. So by bringing the Ark of God to his capital city in Jerusalem, David was, in a sense, visually uniting God's throne with his throne. He was submitting his rule to God's rule. And in that context, then, God promised to establish David's kingdom and appoint his son as the one who would build God's house in David's capital city. And in this context also, David composed a great hymn of thanks. You can find this in 1 Chronicles 16. This song is significant in the book of Psalms and also becomes key for understanding the organization and progression of thought through the five books. Portions of David's hymn in 1 Chronicles 16 appear in at least 12 psalms. And particularly prominent is David's great refrain, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. This refrain appears in many psalms, and notably it was also sung at the dedication of Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and 7. And then there's another portion of David's song that appears in two different psalms. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also is established. It shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That particular stanza appears in both Psalm 29 and Psalm 96. And then the final doxology of David's hymn of thanks in 1 Chronicles 16 appears at the end of book 1 in Psalm 41:13 and the end of book 4, Psalm 106:48. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So this is a significant hymn that helps us to understand the nature and progression of the Psalms. Interestingly, a superscription for Psalm 96, which again, the entirety of Psalm 96 is from David's hymn of thanks in 1 Chronicles 16, a superscription for that Psalm in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, says that Psalm 96 was sung when the house was built after the captivity, referring to the rebuilt temple after God's people returned from exile. So David wrote the song when he brought the ark back to Jerusalem. It was also sung when Solomon dedicated the first temple, and then it was sung again, according to Jewish tradition at least, when the second temple was dedicated after the people returned from exile. So it's very clear then that David's hymn of thanks in 1 Chronicles 16, which comes right before God's covenant in 1 Chronicles 17, are very important in the book of Psalms. This is even less surprising when we consider that Ezra may have both written 1 and 2 Chronicles and edited the canonical form of the Psalter. The five books of Psalms 
are in a significant way an unfolding of the Davidic covenant. God's promise to David that his throne would be established forever through his seed. And understanding the nature of the Psalms in this way helps us to understand more deeply how the Psalms are meant to form within us an image of blessedness in which God's anointed one, as representative of the entire human race, will rule over all creation and thus establish blessedness for all humanity under the sovereign rule of God. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Music